You're listening to the Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast, as always, is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the consulting and analysis division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information on DRI, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. So Prashant, um, we are returning on this episode back to Northeast Asia, but I think um, where our listeners might be a little bit surprised is that we're not actually going to be talking about North Korea. We'll be talking about a quite significant geopolitical development, I think, that's been um, flying under the radar for some time, at least in Washington, perhaps until the past week or so, which is the continuing decline of the relationship between Japan and South Korea, two U.S. treaty allies uh, in, in Northeast Asia, both of which have an incredibly important relationship with the United States, an incredible economic relationship between themselves, who now found themselves um, really at loggerheads over a range of issues. So the immediate impetus for us doing this episode is the decision by Japan to impose export controls on certain technology exports to South Korea uh, in the uh, in uh, just a week ago in the in the final days of June, and given that decision, um, I think it's worth uh, tracing back. I think a set of other developments that really got us to this point where the relationship between Seoul and Tokyo is sort of at a low that we haven't seen in several years. Um, so the origins of what led Japan to impose these export controls on Seoul uh, really traced back to last year when the South Korean Supreme Court uh, decided a case calling on uh, Japanese firm Mitsubishi to offer reparations to South Koreans who had endured forced labor under Japan's occupation of Korea uh, before the second uh, before the end of the Second World War. And obviously, you know, what I'm getting at here is that we continue to see sort of the ghosts of history hang over this relationship. There are obviously um, a range of other issues related to history that keep South Korea and Japan apart, including the status of wartime South Korean and, and North Korean, I mean, Korean uh, sex slaves that were taken by the Imperial Japanese Army during the occupation of Korea and during the Second World War, what are uh, euphemistically referred to as comfort women. Uh, that issue was thought to have been resolved in 2015 in a government-to-government deal that was sort of negotiated secretly. But then the Moon government, uh, Moon Jae-in's government, after taking power in 2017, effectively said that that uh, that agreement lacked legitimacy. And that's a perspective that's broadly shared in South Korea, given the lack of sort of civil society buy-in. And of course, all these issues continue to irk Japan. Tokyo's perspective is that Seoul keeps opening the book on issues that were set to be resolved in the past. Japan's position, for example, on this forced labor issue is that all issues related to the forced labor issue were resolved when Japan and Korea normalized diplomatic relations with their 1965 peace treaty. But Prashant, I think there's a lot to talk about here uh, in in these, um, you know, amid this decline of the relationship between Tokyo and Seoul. In the past, the United States has usually been quite reticent to position itself as an honest broker between its two allies simply because that has more risks than 
perceived benefits, right? Because both countries um, won't perceive Washington to be operating with best interests. Obviously, everybody in Washington wants to see South Korea and Japan get along in the interest of several strategic objectives in the region, everything ranging from dealing with the North Korean threat to balancing China. And we can talk a bit about the geopolitical consequences of what might be in store if this bout of um, tough relations between Japan and South Korea really does turn into a longer-term trend. I mean, my baseline perception is that given how bad things have gotten right now, um, we're unlikely to see an improvement as long as the two leaders, uh, Moon Jae-in and Shinzo Abe, remain in place. Uh, I think we're seeing a degree of personal acrimony. Um, so, you know, looking looking at what's going on right now, um, do you sort of see the the Japanese decision here as as motivated by a broader sort of strategic concern. You know, one of the one of the things that's been interesting is um, talking to people about the incentives that the Abe cabinet had to sort of undertake this step. Right. People have been talking about the upcoming upper house elections in Japan. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, what what do you attribute the Japanese decision here to? You know, I, I think the the frame at which you set this out, which is, you know, sort of the ghosts of history haunting the relationship and the broader geopolitical implications is probably the the best prism with which to view this, right? I think if you just look at the current headlines, um, as we've discussed many times with respect to these disputes in Asia, um, sometimes you, you tend to see, I mean, relative to the geopolitical stakes for both countries as well as the wider region, relative to what these disputes actually are, it's kind of difficult to figure out, you know, why are these countries actually uh, waging all these disputes, um, you know, given all these stakes. But if you look at the broader historical prism with respect to South Korea and Japan, these are issues which, as you pointed out, they stretch back, you know, decades, right? Um, even before the sort of uh, point which with a lot of uh, the commentary about U.S. Uh, policy towards the region kind of sets it out, which is the sort of post-1945 um, era and context, right? So when you look at the, the the big picture here with respect to what South Korea and Japan are dealing with, this is, um, you know, despite recent efforts by these countries to deal with historical issues, and you can even stretch it back to the normalizing of ties back to 1965 and the, the Comfort Woman Agreement, um, which you refer to, you know, as you correctly pointed out, euphemistically to 2015. Um, in spite of their efforts together, in spite of efforts by the United States to help try to sort out these issues between its two treaty allies, um, and in spite of the you know the pretty dramatic transformations that we've seen with respect to Japan and South Korea individually as pro prosperous, successful Asian states, um, and these strategic imperatives, which I think the United States and and you know like you know a lot of the strategic elites all often point out, you know there's bigger fish to fry in terms of China and North Korea. There really are, you know, these huge, deep, um, and very historical political differences that seem to uh, continue to linger between the United between South Korea and Japan, but also with respect to the United States and how it manages these uh, tensions between South Korea and Japan uh, that tend to linger. Um, and the reason why that's significant is because, you know, we're dealing with this in terms of the contemporary significance where both sides are playing a very dangerous escalatory game in public, right? So we've seen various ways of escalation between Japan and South Korea, but it seems to me at least that in the current episode um, of tensions between the two sides, I mean, we have seen a number of these escalations, right? We've been talking about 
Um, you talked about the Supreme Court decisions that have been uh, raised with respect to wartime issues, but we dealt with maritime issues between Japan and South Korea, territorial disputes that have been simmering, um, and sort of the perspective of the Moon Jae-in administration since it's come into office, which is um, sort of to leave this to the courts um, and not to intervene to actually deliver on high-level talks between South Korea and Japan on these issues. And I think absent of that high-level engagement, it's very difficult to see these uh, tensions being resolved, given the fact that these are really deep historical issues. And I think, it, you know, we are on an Asia geopolitics podcast, right? And we've talked about North Korea, we've talked about uh, the challenge that China represents. So you would sort of hope that um, Japan and South Korea would be able to see the bigger picture and kind of confront these issues with respect to these broader strategic implications. But it is the case that um, with respect to these issues or the South China Sea, um, you really do have these deep bilateral differences still uh, percolating and dominating the headlines rather than these uh, mm -hmm. the sort of rational um, you know, perspective from the United States and other actors, which is we hope that you would be able to overcome these differences and, and sort of talk about these broader strategic issues. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the one of the really interesting things about this bout of escalation, you know, as you said, there have been um, bouts of difficult relations between Japan and South Korea in the past, but usually the economic and strategic relationship remains mostly insulated, uh, that mm -hmm. the issues are handled. There is sort of a working level process or a high level process to talk out some of these issues, right? Um, I, I mean, I think the, the 2015 Comfort Woman example is probably a bad example of that because of the secrecy involved in the actual conclusion of the negotiations. But this is really unusual. I mean, especially Japan using sort of interdependence and weaponizing interdependence is just something that I really didn't see coming, right? Because you've had, I mean, Shinzo Abe really out there uh, since, especially since Donald Trump's election, the United States sort of positioning himself as the protector of free trade. And, and here you now have Japan using export controls over over a very difficult political issue, right? I mean, on the South Korean side, it's also, you sort of have a, um, a democratic rule of law issue. Uh, you have the courts deciding on a verdict in a case that the executive simply cannot interfere in. Uh, of course, what the Japanese government has said is that they don't like the general attitude that the Blue House, uh, the the South Korean presidential office, has taken towards the verdict. Um, Moon Jae-in's uh, progressive party, uh, the Minju Party in South Korea, obviously shares the view that the verdict is correct. Uh, there has been a surge of sort of Korean nationalism over the issue as well, um, and certainly over the um, end of the 2015 Comfort Women Agreement. So on both sides, you sort of have a, a surge of real, um, sorry, a surge of nationalism and sort of a shirking of realist considerations. But, you know, Prashant, I mean, what's more distressing, uh, you know, I think I think history is sort of the easy frame in which to talk about this, but I think the more concerning thing that I worry about longer term is the sort of strategic destinies of South Korea and Japan really beginning to diverge in a big way? And I think we've also started to see signs of that, right? I mean, we've talked about, um, I think I think two issues to talk about there are probably China and North Korea. With, with North Korea, you obviously have the South Koreans really out in front, favoring a policy of calibrated engagement, uh, moving towards eventual economic cooperation, the integration of the Korean Peninsula into uh, Northeast Asian transportation and infrastructure networks with China and Russia, whereas Japan's perspective could not have been more different, right? There has been a little bit of progress on that since May with the Abe government now changing its position towards meeting with Kim Jong-un without conditions. But 
everything from the abductees issues to Japan's position that any deal with North Korea should include the complete dismantlement of missiles of all ranges, uh, all ranges, chemical and biological weapons. The two countries, I think, have a sharp divergence there. And obviously, we don't have a six-party talks-like multilateral process right now where you might have these um, interests from both Korea and Japan taking a place at a larger table. Everything is really happening through the United States-led process now with Japan and Korea conveying their concerns to the United States and obviously the inter-Korean process playing a major part in supporting that. So that's the Korea issue. And then on China, I think there's also a, a nuanced discussion to be had. I think broadly, Seoul and Tokyo recognize that there are sort of economic challenges coming from, from China. Uh, I think with South Korea, the episode of being sanctioned after adopting the THAAD missile defense system, mm -hmm. something that actually Moon Jae-in had opposed quite strongly when he wasn't a presidential candidate and when he was in opposition to Park Geun-hye, who authorized the, the deployment. But obviously... Um, the South Korean new Southern policy was really forged in reaction to that, in reaction to the dependency that South Korea's economy has to China. And obviously, I mean, that's actually an interesting sort of side effect of this episode now is that South Korea realizes that, hmm, maybe having China as a hedge for Japanese economic retaliation might actually be useful going forward. But I think the strategic threat perception is very different with regard to China, right? I mean, South Korea obviously would need China for any um, future sort of unification agenda on the Korean Peninsula, especially economic integration, potentially, you know, North Korea joining the Belt and Road and, and benefiting from those projects, whereas Japan, again, is carving out a, a very different path for itself with regard to China, very much putting all of its eggs in the U.S. alliance basket. And South Korea, while it remains committed to the alliance with the United States, um, obviously, I think we've seen both of these alliances begin to get shaky under under the Trump administration. Uh, things just aren't the way they used to be. So the concern that I have is that not only are we seeing South Korea and Japan beginning to squabble more directly with each other as nationalism surges, but that we might be seeing sort of a broader geopolitical divergence between the two countries in, in Northeast Asia. Um, I mean, I think, I think, you know, there are sort of reasonable criticisms to be made of this, that the two countries will likely find a way out of this crisis. But, I mean, looking looking at the contours of this right now with Moon Jae-in calling this an, an unprecedented emergency after meeting with the heads of South Korean conglomerates or uh, Chaebol, uh, things really don't look too good to my eyes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and I think, you know, I would just add two, two other elements to this that are worrying with respect to the broader Japan-South Korea relationship. One is the fact that, as you pointed out, um, this really gets at the issue of interdependence and the extent of economic linkages between the two sides, right? So we're used to talking about economic coercion, uh, particularly in, in Washington, the, the narrative is often used with respect to China and how with respect to rare earths, um, with respect to Japan in the past, or, you know, fruit and bananas with respect to the Philippines, you know, the Chinese often engage in economic coercion in order to exact sort of political or strategic advantages. But now you're seeing, you know, two U.S. treaty allies engage in the same sort of behavior and dynamic. And if you're trying to craft a narrative about a, a sort of united Indo-Pacific region with respect to the China threat, this does not uh, seem very constructive on the on the part of the United States, at least, right? Um, and the other aspect that's worrying is, I mean, depending on what which polls you read and 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 you know what uh, opinions you believe. Um, you, you can sort of vary it uh, depending on your perspective. But if you look at generally polls, right, this is not something where it's just the two governments um, engaging in tussles with each other. I mean, it is affecting popular opinion as well. 
um, distrust between Japan and the and South Korea with respect to popular perceptions is at a low. Um, and the longer that this drags on, and if this cuts at a lot of the interdependence conversation, I suspect that this could have, um, unfortunately, you know, sort of broader consequences beyond just how the Japanese and the South Korean governments engage with each other. I think that if you were optimistic, you would say, you know, given the fact that, as you pointed out, right, we have an election in Japan, uh, assuming that that blows over and you have, um, you know, you wrote for us at The Diplomat, you have David Stilwell, the, the top U.S.-Asia diplomat now in, in the region. Um, he's going to be visiting both Japan and South Korea. Hopefully the United States can engage in some kind of process that helps bring these two countries together. Um, but, you know, the record uh, doesn't offer a lot of comfort in this regard, right? I mean, the fact is that this is something which, irrespective of what the United States and other outside parties do, Japan and South Korea do have to come to these uh, issues and come to terms on these among themselves. And that's not just a, co a consideration about strategic dynamics. That's also about domestic politics about these both these governments and what other priorities they have that are going on both in domestic politics as well as foreign policy. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I do think that this is something where um, it's quite a serious issue, even though we've seen previous bouts of this happen before. Yeah, I mean, on, on Stillwell's trip, uh, that's about to begin tomorrow. We're recording this podcast on July 10th. He's supposed to arrive in Tokyo on July 11th. Um, you know, I found the itinerary to be a little bit interesting for Stillwell's trip. He's, he's visiting all four U.S. treaty allies in Asia, and he's not going from Tokyo to Seoul. He's going from Tokyo down to Manila, and then he's going back up to Seoul, uh, mm -hmm. which is a little unusual. But, you know, um, I mean, uh, actually, I think um, James Schaff pointed out, uh, James Schaff at the Carnegie Endowment pointed out that the bilateral security dialogue in Manila probably determined that instead of right. avoiding the perception of being seen as a... Uh, mediator at this time, but I think the side effect will be a little bit welcome that, uh, you know, he's not popping over from Tokyo to Seoul. But hey, it's at least a little bit of good news that after how long, a little over two years, we have a Senate-confirmed Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and the Pacific. So that's a little bit more diplomatic muscle that hopefully can contribute to the United States playing a slightly more constructive role in helping Japan and South Korea find a way out of this crisis. Um, but I mean, the Obama administration era effort to foment tri uh, trilateralism has really uh, dissipated, right? Uh, you had mm -hmm. obviously the, it was the 2014 nuclear security summit, I think, where Obama had Pakenhe and Abe meet in a trilateral leaders level meeting. And that was praised at the time as sort of evidence of U.S. leadership uh, really kind of playing a critical role in bringing the two countries together. That was obviously also at a time of particularly heightened tensions in the East China Sea, um, the same year that Obama gave Japan the uh, assurances on the U.S.-Japan uh, Treaty Alliance applying to the Senkaku Islands, for example. And um, the other issue was that you had a trilateral sort of consultative dialogue taking place at the Deputy Secretary of State level, uh, led by Anthony Blinken. And as far as I know, that has not been picked up in any real way under the Trump administration. So trilateralism, insofar as it exists right now, or at least did in 2017 and 2018 was was taking place at, at primarily through um, Indo-PACOM and cooperating on the North Korea threat, cooperating on ballistic missile defense activities. But the political component of American leadership on trilateralism has really been absent. So I think that'll be something to watch for in in the coming days and weeks. Yep, absolutely. And and I think I mean we we can't ignore the fact that you know even though we we do try to sort of stick to the fact that, I mean, there is a bipartisan element to U.S.-Asia policy. 
we are dealing with a, a U.S. president, which, you know, we, we do have to question, you know, the Trump administration's policies with respect to Japan and South Korea and alliances more generally, right? We've talked about this podcast more broadly about um, Trump's comments about Japan, Trump's comments about uh, South Korea individually. So this is occurring in a context at which, uh, to the extent that the United States has played some kind of mediating role between Japan and South Korea to help ease these tensions, um, that role is really um, in question uh, as as we talk about these things and we head to uh, the elections in, in November 2020. And there's also a lot of uncertainty about the two issues that you raised, right, on China and North Korea. Um, you know, Trump's uh, recent engagements at, at G20, where we also, you know, unfortunately didn't see a lot of um, light at the end of the tunnel between Japan and South Korea in terms of engagement. Um, you know, that really does cast a little bit of doubt as to the U.S. variable um, in all of these considerations, even though, as, as I said earlier, I mean, a lot of this will just depend on what Japan and South Korea do. I think the other thing I, I did want to point out, though, it, I mean, since this is a geopolitical podcast, it's not like this is something which, you know, we're dealing with Japan and South Korea as two bilateral countries and they have to settle these issues themselves, right? I mean, if this thing continues, and, you know, I, I say if because I know I don't know where this is going to head, but I mean, these are, you know, two countries that have significant consequences in terms of their economic weight and in terms of supply chains across the region, right? So when you talk about um, South Korea, for example, the, the role of uh, Samsung, you talk about the power of the Japanese economy. So, you know, if we do see some of these, um, you know, nightmare scenarios, whether it's, you know, downward trajectories on South Korean economic growth, uh, that is something that, you know, not just South Korea and Japan have to worry about, but the broader region as well. And so this is something that I think we, we should really keep an eye out for, um, and even though we're not sure where this is going to actually head in reality. Yeah, so I mean, a few things to watch going forward. So South Korea has filed a complaint at the WTO over the issue. Japan has sort of rejected that, saying that the WTO is not the appropriate forum for these export controls. Um, mm. I mean, I should have said this in the introduction, but the rationale that Japan is using for the export controls, which apply to specific sort of chemicals and materials used in, incidentally used in the manufacturing of several critical electronic components for things like smartphones and televisions, is that apparently South Korea has um, not held up sort of um, sufficient protections in ensuring that these materials don't find themselves being used by nefarious actors for sort of, you know, troubling ends. So Japan's justification is national security for these export controls. And the Japanese have said that there's really nothing to negotiate over the issue. Mm -hmm. uh, Chief Cabinet Secretary uh, Yoshihide Suga said that just uh, just today, I believe, on Wednesday, uh, July 10th. So um, I think I think this is going to move pretty quickly through the month of July, and I suspect we'll probably come back to revisit the mm -hmm. ongoing dispute between the two countries. But I mean, like I said at the beginning, I mean, my my broader perception is that things are going to get worse until they get better. And um, I just don't really see Japan and South Korea relations getting back to a point where the two countries will have a cordial, productive working relationship while you really have these two leaders um, in, in place, right? So something will have to change at, at the leadership level in either country to perhaps open up space for a, a more productive dialogue. Mm -hmm. But um, Prashant, sure. yeah, uh, I think that's all we have time for today, unfortunately. So uh, thanks a lot for joining me. Good to be with you. Great. And uh, for listeners, if you like what you heard on the Asia Geopolitics podcast and you want to keep up with future episodes, uh, you can do that by subscribing at Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, or any other number of podcast providers. Just search for Asia Geopolitics. 
And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review on any one of these services, I really love it if you could do that. That really helps get the word out about the show. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.